Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to start always by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage and remind you to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. They are appreciated. Now, if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know, even people you don't know, and rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. You get to like us and share us there as well. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. We definitely appreciate it and use it. Okay, so let's get this show started. My guest is a man who needs little in the way of introduction. It is hockey legend and former captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Daryl Sittler. I have a small spoiler alert. Daryl and I talk very little about the game of hockey or his career. For those details, I invite you to read his book, Captain, The Life and Career of Daryl Sittler. And great book, good opportunity to get to know Daryl better. And believe me, after listening to this, you'll realize he is worth getting to know more about. So instead, today, we're talking life, business, philosophy, and far more. And of course, his hockey career was instrumental in all of these conversations. So having said all of that, let's begin by just saying from his humble beginnings as one of eight kids born in Kitchener, Ontario, to his life after his hockey career, Daryl shares some of his perspectives on business, his entrepreneurial spirit, and I believe most importantly, he shares about the loss of his first wife, Wendy, in 2001 and her struggle with colon cancer. My conversation with Daryl is as open and authentic as they come. And along the way, I also share a very personal story about a serious health scare that I had several years ago, which I've just never shared in public. But it was, in fact, the catalyst for Daryl joining me on this show. Our collective intention and message behind our discussion is one both Daryl and I hope really has an impact in making a difference and getting a message out. So please enjoy the show. And if you like it as much as I think you're going to, please share the show. Enjoy. Daryl Sittler, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. 
man, it's taken some time to get together to do this since uh, I first met you, and we've had lots of conversations or a couple conversations where we broke bread together. But uh, welcome to the show, my friend. Good to be here, and uh, I've always enjoyed your company, Patrick. Thanks, Daryl. Everybody knows you, of course, or many people know you as a hockey player, a star with the Toronto Maple Leafs for many, many years. And I don't want to talk so much about that because, of course, you've got lots of stories. I mean, years of stories, but you've written a book. I think it was in 2016 you re- you uh, released your book. I think it's called Captain, right? That's right, yeah. What about after hockey? So if somebody walks up to you today and says, so, Daryl, what are you doing? What's Daryl all about today? Well, I've been retired a long time. So I retired in 85. I was only 35 years of age at the time. So after your playing days are over, uh, most of us have to try to reinvent ourselves and find something we get up in the morning and enjoy doing. And, you know, when my career was over, um, I guess people in hockey thought, hey, why don't you be a coach, you know? And uh, I think the the lesson I learned uh, while I was playing, I went to a career counseling course near near the end of my career is you have to decide and find out what you like doing uh and not what other people want for you and then get involved and uh generally don't invest money in it but go and work for somebody else and do something to find out if it's really what you want to do and then find out all the the pros and the cons about that so i did that after i was done playing but while i played i um had the opportunity to go to many events, a number of which were paid for to, to speak and to tell a few stories, but to share some of my experiences off the ice to do with some of the charities that made a difference in my life. So while my playing days were uh, uh, in the wintertime, in the offseason, I would do some of those public speaking engagements, and that gave me the confidence and the, and the opportunity to do things after my career. Um, I got involved, uh, uh, again, you meet uh, different people in your lives and a lot of people when you're a celebrity they'd like to be a part of your life and and a lot of people have opportunities for you and you have to kind of sit and uh, go through them and weigh them out and, uh, and and then go kind of with your personal gut feel instinct whether or not that's the deal or that's the person you want to go with again accumulating as much knowledge and information as you can to make the best decision you can do so I got involved with a number of things uh I have a summer home north of Toronto, and a friend of mine was in real estate. Another uh, friend of mine was uh, in the plastics industry, and he gave me an opportunity to work with his company and in, in the beautiful plastic industries. Bill Swinner was the gentleman's name. But one thing I realized too, and understood that hey, if I'm going to get involved in uh, a business or a company, you try to learn as much as you can. And uh, because I played hockey and uh, have an opportunity uh, to go to work with my my buddy in the plastics industry, I thought it was important for me to go spend time in the plant, learn kind of how the product's made, learn a little bit about shipping, get to know some of the personalities there because when I'm out doing the sales, I want to know uh, that I feel confident in what I'm talking about and that when and if I get a sale that uh, we can deliver it uh, accordingly. So those are all background things I learned, I guess, one of the things that, uh, again, at a young age, I was fortunate to be quite aware of the importance of preparation. So preparation as a young kid to fulfill my dream to play hockey was one thing. And I spent those doing those little things day in and day out to get to the National Hockey League and was fortunate to do that. But after my career was over, uh, 
the philosophy didn't change any um, was to go and and uh, again uh, learn as much as you can, uh, develop some skills, and uh, so that when the opportunity is there and you're you're presenting something or you're you're doing an interview to get a job or to, to be a part of a company that you have the best chance of succeeding. So in doing so, my retiring at age 35, I, I, I got involved in uh, a number of different companies. I, I was asked to be on um, some public traded mining companies. I, I took an interest in mining. A good friend of mine, uh, Aristotle Amon, who's since passed away, uh, got me interested. And so one of the things, again, speaking a little bit about my philosophy from before is, hey, if I'm going to be on the board of a company, I want to be the best prepared I can be, and not just I'm there because of my name, but because I'm actually making a contribution to that company and I can make some some uh, good choices. And uh, so I went and took the uh, course at Rotman University, the director's course. So. And I found that uh, taking that course, it was... Uh, four weekends, uh, three-day weekends, uh, and it was pretty intense. But being in that room with a lot of CEOs and CFOs and presidents of companies and me just coming out of hockey, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water, so to speak. But I also realized that, hey, just apply the same mentality and work ethic and attitude toward being a director as you did as a hockey player and uh, and a lot of it comes down to common sense decisions. No difference in your business or whoever your listener is out there. If uh, we all know the right right from wrong, and we all have gut instincts at time, and if there's red flags out there that you think are red flags, well, make sure you find out and get the answer to why you think it's a red flag or whatever, in order again to make the the correct decision. So I got involved in a number of boards. I've enjoyed that. I want to cut in a little bit. I want to, you know, because you've said a lot and, and that's is really, really interesting. But as I hear you speak that, you know, at 35 years old, you leave hockey, you know, hockey, you talk about the work ethic that you developed to be the player that you were to actually make the NHL. And that's great. And then you take on this kind of, you open up the doors of business. So first two questions, and they, they lead back actually to, I think, you know, how you were raised a little bit. Where do you get your number one? Where do you get your entrepreneurial spirit from? Because lots of hockey players retire and they don't necessarily go into sitting on a board of directors or being in public companies. They they certainly can go to work for a job. But what you're talking about is quite entrepreneurial. So my question for you is, did you come by that naturally because of who your parents were? Or where do you think you got that from? And, And how did you kind of develop that philosophy or that view of the world of saying, if I'm going to get into this and do it, if I'm going to be a, I want to be a contribution. I don't want to just come in for my name and because I played hockey at, at an NHL level. So before, you know, like, where do you think that mindset that you have, was that developed as a young guy? Well, I can I, uh, remember, like I grew up in a small Mennonite community, a little village and uh, eight kids in our family. My father came from a family of, of 12 children. My mom, a family of six, so lots of, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, and and uh, those uh, people around me. But my dad was a crane operator. He had to work from paycheck paycheck to paycheck to feed, you know, all of us in the family. And uh, I admired my dad's work ethic. My mother uh, got married at age sixteen. Had my older sister at sixteen. Had my my older brother at seventeen and a half, and had me at nineteen. So she had three kids by the time she was nineteen years of age. 
and, and moved on to have eight by the time she was probably 31, 32. So she was a, obviously a very hard worker, very uh, stay at home, but take care of the kids and raise us. But one of the things my parents instilled in my brothers and sisters and I, and probably because of the economic situation of the family, that we had to contribute to things, mow the grass, do the dishes, uh, shovel the snow at young ages. Um, and then if we went out and earned some money, which in our small community, if you wanted a job, you could get it. You could go work on the farm with some Mennonites. You could have a paper route. You could do different things. And I always had that spirit to do that because I, I enjoyed having my own money. And at the same time, my parents, for all my brothers and sisters, if you earned, say, $100, you had to give 15% back to the family household. And I remember as a young kid, kid 13, 14, they went, yeah, that's not very fair. My mom and dad are taking money from me. But more importantly, it taught me the value of a dollar, what that you don't get to keep everything, even as we are today, the amount of taxes you pay and the help you give other people in your family. So, so those were all things I learned at a young age. But I also remember I made money in the summertime. And uh, so now I saved some money. So it was 500 bucks. And uh, now the fall comes, I'm thinking, okay, how can I earn money in the wintertime? So I went and took that 500 bucks and bought a snowblower. You know, I thought, well, okay, I'm taking this and I'm going to roll it into making more money in the wintertime. So I plow out and blow snow in the, in the wintertime. So that was always my mentality. When I got to the, the Maple Leafs uh, as a 20-year-old draft pick, even when I played junior hockey in London, I mean, you didn't get paid much to do, but again, you had the opportunity to, to do an outside job. I uh, worked in hockey schools in the summertime to, to earn money, but I remember working in a clothing store. Did I like it? No, it was boring, but I got some free clothes. I like clothes, and I got a paycheck for it, and you were paid on commission, so you're motivated those sorts of ways. So all those learning experience, again, was a choice that I had. Um, and you're right. I can remember playing with players early in my National Hockey League career, and they would say to me, hey, Daryl, uh, why are you going to this minor hockey banquet? Why are you doing this? You could be just, and they would be hanging out, you know, having a beer or playing golf all day or whatever it is. But I, again, was of the mentality. I never knew how long my career was lasting. There was an opportunity to there to, to, learn, to learn and make some more money. And uh, so I did that. And uh, it obviously took me to, to where I am after my career is over and today. So I've always had that entrepreneurship. Even today, I mean, I could retire and do nothing, but hey, like yourself, you got to get up in the morning, have something to do and feel like there's a purpose. And, you know, you know, and then now I've had this lifestyle where I have a summer home, I got a cottage, I got grandkids, I got, you know, other things. So you kind of create this lifestyle that you're used to and you like, but you still got to be able to afford to do it. So that motivates me too. So when you got into, uh, when you were looking at playing hockey as a young man, when you first started and you saw that maybe there was a potential to, you know, make the NHL, if you ever thought that, or, you know, going through your junior years where there was uh, possible drafts, were you driven to play hockey in those days? Was, was money a big motivating factor or was it really just the game that drove you? Do you think, or, or do you even know, I mean, that might not be a fair question, but do you have any recollection of that? No, I, I I had a passion and love for the game right from when I was first started playing. And for some reason, um, I guess the two go hand in hand. You have a passion, so you want to be out there. So we'd skate on outdoor rinks. You'd, you'd do as much as you can when you had the free time to do it, and whether it was playing ball hockey in the driveway and making your own nets. And, you know, um, I mean, even going to the local, uh, watching the my Uncle Tom um, – and the junior team and stuff like that. So you had 
kind of childhood idols within your own community. They weren't NHL people, but they were the, you know, the, you know, the kid's brother down the block whose brother played midget hockey, junior hockey. So I was always motivated to, to be the best player I could be. I had this passion and love, like a lot of kids even today, watching Hockey Night in Canada, the dream that, hey, hey, maybe there's an opportunity to, to fulfill that dream. So I think, I think with anything in life, I mean, sometimes I guess some people get lucky and they can make a fortune in a, a way that they kind of just fallen into it. But if you have a passion like I did and you work every day of it, you got a chance to succeed. No guarantees, but, uh, but you know, the journey getting there to me is, is, is rewarding and is as important as after you there's the success you had to me. And some people, you know, they, they want they want the glory before they even get there, you know, and they look at you or myself and say, oh, you're pretty lucky. You did, well, hey, you put in a lot of time and effort and work and and uh, you got rewarded because of that. You know? There's an, it's an interesting, you know, I know you as an entrepreneur, as a business guy. I certainly know you as a former hockey player and it's interesting in some of the conversations that we've had the opportunity to have. You know, I've been in the industry for 35 years, but you you kind of were exiting as I was just ramping up, picking up steam. So although I, I know many of the players that you actually played with, where I really know you as a business guy and and I acknowledge in for me, I see a lot of wisdom and integrity and just who you are. And 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 so that's just an interesting observation. But at 35 years old, you retire, you come out of hockey. Were you did you go through a phase of who the hell am I if I'm not the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs? I didn't go through uh, who I, who am I. Um, what I went through, and I think a lot of players go through, is when you've done something all your life and you love it, and and it's a team thing, and and uh, it's you go on an emotional roller coaster when you win the, the you know the the adulation and the, the, the you know the adrenaline that comes with that, and then when you go through a period where you're injured or the team's not doing well or you lose out. So those are all emotions is a roller coaster of them, but that's your life, you know. Right. Um, you get away from it a little bit in the summertime when the season's over, but then you rev up again uh, come September. So when I retired from playing, that's what I missed most in my life. It was just this kind of this same old get up every day. Um, even when I got involved in some of the businesses, you were part of a business team, but it wasn't the same emotion feeling as it was when you played, because when you play, it's spontaneous. It happens. It's right there. It's, you know, and, and I remember after being out of the game a year, year or two, I, I said to my wife, my late wife, Wendy, I said, I got to get some excitement or emotion in my life. And I, I, I went and race car drove a couple of times in charity races, but wow. doing that, that brought back all those emotions and that feeling and that adrenaline that you get from playing. Yeah. It's fast. It's quick. It's daring. It's whatever. And then um, on my 40th birthday, my wife surprised me with a parachute jump, and uh, which was exhilarating. Eh? But uh, I had said to her uh, when I was maybe 37 or 38, I said, you know, maybe I should jump out of a plane someday. Maybe that would give me that. And she remembered it and surprised me blindfolded me, took me out to uh, the parachute club, and I jumped out of a plane on my 40th birthday. And back then when we did it, you, you weren't uh, doing tandem. You jumped out, and you are on your own to pull the chute and get a backup chute. So... So, yeah, uh, but I think the longer and the farther you get away from the game, um, uh, those, you know, that emotional thing kind of goes away a little bit. comes back when we have the opportunity, which I'm fortunate as an alumni to do, to, 
you know, you might play a game. We did the tour, uh, played out in Edmonton and Calgary, uh, retired guys playing against whether it's cops or firemen, but the buildings were full. The emotion was there again. And, uh, so fortunate to have that come back. One of the things that, uh, I also kind of lived my life by and did when I retired, I said, okay, I'm 35 years now. Where do I want to be at 45? And then when I'm 45, so I realized that, and I looked at other guys around me, a lot of guys, when they're finished playing, they, they train because that was their livelihood and they had to train to be in shape to play. I looked at it as a health reason why I want to train. And I thought to myself, and I still to this day, even though I'm 68, I said, okay, I can do this today. If I continue to do it day in and day out, and you do it years go by, so when I'm 75, providing injury or health issues, I should be able to still be doing the thing I'm 68. And that's why I feel I've had the, you know, the, you know, the benefits and, and, and feel still pretty uh, good emotionally and physically at, at age 68. Now, having said that, yeah, you had a few operations, that, you know, not a, uh, you know, bone chips taken out of your knee. I had back surgery because I had stenosis. But again, it's thinking ahead, not just living for today, but trying to do the things that kind of better for be better for you down the road so so it it sounds like it's quite natural for you even as a kid growing up but and playing hockey that you're often looking into the future for yourself and actually always working backwards from an outcome of some sort i mean you were working backwards from an outcome of making money before you made the nhl you're working backwards from an outcome of one day perhaps being in the nhl and then even when you're in the nhl you have the foresight to see that yeah, I need to be part of this community. I need to develop and, and evolve as a person in, in the contacts that I have, the network that I grow, because that will also be w- what I need when I retire from hockey, given that. Is that how you see it in your brain? It's just an interesting, you know, I, I admired in the conversations that we've had in the past, Daryl, just the wisdom that you have. And 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 it's I connect it to hockey because I know so many hockey players. When I look at, we did the performance program in Toronto and you and Wendell Clark came out. And, you know, spoke and gave, you know, provided some, I don't know, some insights into the world and your view of the world, which was really, really strong. And I, I see that that era of hockey player just have a, a you know, it's because they're older, but they also have a, a layer of wisdom that they brought with them. It's not, they didn't necessarily evolve into it, but there's many players that like you have so much wisdom that was developed and and actually evolved from their experience in the NHL back in those days because as much money as you made it wasn't a lot of money compared to what yeah, it is totally today. Not. No, totally not. I mean, one of the things uh, I I mentioned when I get out and talk to people. So we weren't drafted till you were twenty when when I was drafted. So you finished your three years of junior, left home when you were sixteen. So you grew up fairly quickly. You know, learning to the you know you're, yeah you're with a, a billet but at the same time you have the responsibility to you know to go to bed on time take care of yourself go to school show up do your you know those sorts of things but all that background i think was instilled in my parents as a as a kid growing up in 1970 when i was drafted by the leafs you know i'm a first round pick but i go into a dressing room of a number of leaf players who had just come off winning the stanley cup in 67 so there's the likes of uh, George Armstrong there, Dave Keon, Ron Ellis, Paul Henderson, Normie Allman was a uh, you know Hall of Fame type player. So I'm a shy, quiet kid coming into this thing, but I respected that from day one. I I, I watched, I learned about a, a guy like Keon, who was voted the number one Maple Leaf 
ever in the leave leave history by by the media and 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 the board of people and he deserved that and and having played with him i would see even though he won the con smite and the stanley cup he would be the hardest working guy in practice and so you learn from those guys and you say if that's what it takes and not what you have to do you do those sorts of things and the other part the other part of it is is humility you know uh, Wendell Clark, as you know, he's a Saskatchewan boy, humble guy, tough guy in the National Hockey League, great career, has a statue down there like myself, but never forgot where he came from, humble. He's still Wendell. And uh, to me, that's one of the greatest attributes a person can can have. And, and uh, switching gears here a little bit, when I was uh, playing with the Leafs and I, I picked up a Toronto newspaper one morning and I looked at the front picture of it, and he's a young guy, he just dipped his leg in the Atlantic Ocean. He was going to run across Canada on one leg, Terry Fox. Right. And when I say Terry Fox to you and your listeners today, everybody knows who Terry Fox is. But what struck me most about Terry Fox when I read that, how he had lost his leg to cancer. And um, instead of feeling sorry and pity for himself, he was going to try to make a difference in other people's lives. So he trained, he took on this challenge. And to run 26 miles every day. I mean, I've never run 26 miles in my life. I trained maybe run 10, 12, but on one leg in bad weather and get up the next day and do it all for every, every day, every day to make a difference. So unbelievable. When Terry arrived at the Ontario Quebec border, I got a call and it was from the, um, the president of the Ontario Cancer Society. And they'd met Terry there and they said, is there anything special that they could do from the Cancer Society standpoint, when he went through Ontario to show their appreciation. Terry Fox wanted uh, a request to, uh, for, of two things. He wanted to possibly meet Bobby Orr and to meet Daryl Sucker. When I got that call to say, hey, would you like to meet Terry Fox? Hey, boy, would I want to meet Terry Fox? So they set it up. He had no idea it was coming. He ran 13 miles in Toronto. I remember it was a beautiful July day. And on my way down to the uh, to meet him, I was driving down from my summer home. I thought, gee, what can I do for him? So I, I went home and I grabbed my All-Star jersey. I played in the All-Star game that year, threw in a brown paper bag. And went down to uh, downtown Toronto, and he was in a hotel room. He finished 13 miles. I go in there, hey, would anybody like to go for a run? But I always remember that first time meeting Terry Fox. First of all, his big smile, just his demeanor and uh, we went down university avenue the streets were lined with people uh, they were cheering him on some people crying and, and 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 i just stood back and i wanted terry to have the you know the, be the front and center because that that's who he was and he should be and we went into nathan phillips square and there was probably fifteen thousand people but the point from that day forward in meeting terry fox has left an impression on my life he is like no other another person and uh and what I'm saying here is what grasped me is how humble of a guy he was. He wasn't doing it for Terry Fox and for admiration. He was doing it to try to help some other kids that might be going through this. And I think Canada sensed that and the business committee sensed that. And that day forward, the thing took off, his run. And now we are all these years later, it's been $800 million raised. Terry Fox's pictures in my home here. And there's not a time I don't go by and I look at it and say, listen, that guy in that short period of time in his life could do what he did for all of us. And Daryl Sittler maybe can do a little more. And I encourage people to do that. I, I've always been a believer and uh, that um, every day we get up, we have an opportunity to make a choice on how we're going to live it and what we're going to do with that day. 
And uh, there's going to be opportunities in front of you. There's going to pe- be people uh, needing your, your help, needing some time to listen to them, needing some advice. But you can take the choice or make the decision, hey, I'm going to sit on the sidelines, not going to get involved, maybe not do anything, or I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get off the sidelines and I'm going to get involved in whatever the, the, the issue or the event might be. And I learned through my career and my life that, hey, there's been a lot of opportunities to sick kids and other charities and stuff like that. And the times that I took when those opportunities were there to get involved and to try to make a difference, I never regret it. It comes back to you in other ways. You don't do it for those reasons. But when you do it, I can assure your listeners, if they do take those steps to try to make a difference, they'll find ways that it'll come back to them that they never believed would. And uh, I encourage that for people. So people like Terry Fox, hey, you don't have to do it in the magnitude of him or Daryl Sittler. You could be in your own little community there. You could be the coach of a minor team. You could be a Sunday school teacher. You could be a family member who's going through some difficult times and uh, and they need your they need your support. They need your your comfort. They need your guidance or your 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 knowledge. And uh, you know, I encourage people to get involved and do it. Yeah, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, we all want to be successful and got bills to pay and all those sorts of things. But along the way, in your journey of life, uh, I'm an advocate and believe that uh, that uh, you know everybody should should take the time to do those sorts of things. You show up for sure, and and you know you talk about humility and integrity. You know you live from that place, work ethic. You came out of your career. You go into the business world. Okay, number one, you've got profile. Uh, secondly, everybody. I don't want to say everybody, but so many want to be seen with you. They want to, you know, I'm attached to this or I'm attached to that. And when you're in business and you've got the work ethic, when you've got the integrity, when you have that humility, do you find that you've been tested over the years? I'm I'm sure you have. I suspect you have. I, I can't say I'm sure, but I suspect you have. When your integrity is tested or when you're, where, where humility or on a team and a business that you're part of, do you take a really strong stand? Like, do you push back hard in those situations? What What's your response to situations where maybe the business is making it all about the money or the, you know, where you're not really feeling like, yeah, okay, what are we doing here? This doesn't really make sense. Do you take a really strong stand for that? Or are you pretty vocal in those situations? Well, I, anything I do, I try to do it with as much knowledge and educated as I can before I speak and to make a decision. And having said that, I've been involved with, businesses that the person I was getting involved with, I thought was somebody different, get involved and you'll find out the true colors down the road. And, and uh, some of them haven't turned out very well. And, uh, but I've always believed no different when I played and I, I had confrontations with a guy like Punch Imlach or Harold Ballard, I believe it's important to stand up to what is right. And there are people out there who their ethics aren't right and correct. And they try to, to push those down your throat or override you or intimidate you with that. And uh, at the end of the day, I mean, there's that old saying, you got to look at yourself in the mirror and, and, uh, and uh, know who you are. And, and uh, if you don't, you don't speak up and you let things go. And this is one of the things I learned from being on a board. Like I'm representing the shareholders. I'm not representing the president of that company, the owner of that company. I'm representing you who put your hard-earned money into buy shares. And that's why I'm on the board to oversee and protect that. And you learn that 
in the in the director's course. So no difference than in in business. Uh, 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 when I was the vice president of the players union in the NHL, I was there obviously because I was a good player. I took an interest in it. But when we were making decisions on player issues, you were standing up for the guy, not the Daryl Center, who's the superstar making more money, but the the guy at the, the bottom end of the scale, the fourth liner, the guy being sent to the minors, the, you know, the families that uh, they wanted you to play on Christmas Day, those sorts of things. So you do what's right for the the overall better picture of things, you know. And yeah, I'm a believer to to stand up for what is right and what you believe in, and uh, and uh, because if you don't, hey, you're only going to kick yourself in the butt later. You, you don't get those opportunities back. And if you don't do them, then it's kind of a lost opportunity. And uh, the person is taking advantage of it, so to speak. Leadership. I mean, you're a leader. You know, the conversation around leadership can be nature or nurture. Uh, you were a leader, certainly through your career as a hockey player. And do you have a, a level of awareness around that where you actually are consciously thinking about who you're being as a leader or or are you really just going by your gut or are you reading and and really looking at who you are being as a leader and how you can be a better leader is is are do you study it do you pay attention to it well i think i think being a leader like when i when i was with london junior hockey they made me the captain of the team after two years well you're 17 18 years of age but a lot of those leadership skills started when i was in uh, younger, you know, and, and when I say that, so as an example, you go through your teenage years, you're 15, 16, some of your buddies are starting to smoke or whatever, cigars, or they snuck a few beers and they want to go drink. So you have a choice as a person. You can be a follower or, you know, or maybe you want to do it. But like I said earlier, we all know kind of right from wrong, right? And if you know it's wrong, then you should understand before you do it, the consequences that might come with doing it, having you get caught or whatever, right? That, so I've always had that, and I was always strong enough to be my own person. And I didn't get involved in even take things like hazing on a team. You know, I didn't like that sort of stuff. I didn't like when teammates would do it to other teammates, you know. But everybody has a different mentality. But you have to – what I had to do is know what my morals are, what my upbringing is, and what was right or wrong. So do I sit on the sidelines? No, you try to do something that you feel is right to – to do that. So as a, as a member of the Players Association, I did that many times. And then when I became the captain of the Leafs, um, I just looked back and said, okay, why did they make me a captain? Obviously, there's uh, my work ethic, my demeanor. Um, those were reasons why. And don't try to change that. Did I, did I try to study and read books on it? No, I just went kind of my, my gut and what I felt was right or wrong. And lots of times, uh, you don't have to say anything. People can tell just by your actions um, and how you respond to things uh, um, that are more important. The other, the other part, and you're talking about business, you learn through sport. In order to be a, a strong leader and a good leader, it's important to have strong leadership around you. You know, and I was fortunate in Toronto to have guys like Lanny and Tiger. Patty Boutet and different guys with character. And, and, and that makes your job as a leader, you know, more supportive and more easier to do than if you had a bunch of disruptive guys around you. But uh, that really is leadership, isn't it? Often is surrounding yourself with the right people. Yeah. Going through your career, I want to kind of get off into a little bit about the discussion uh, uh, about your wife, Wendy, who passed away years ago now. But 
you know, during that time, I mean, we often say, you know, as men, I mean, I, I know myself, you know, I would not have accomplished anywhere near what I've accomplished in my life if it wasn't for my wife, Stephanie. So, I mean, Wendy was a big part of your career. She went through all the wins and all the losses and all the growth in your career at that time as well. And can you share with me a little bit about what it was like as a young couple going through into the NHL? Were you, was she always behind you? Were you guys, were you a traditional husband where wife stayed at home back in those days? Like I would say back that many years ago, I would say back in those days, what was the relationship that you had with Wendy back then as you were going through your career? What happened? So when I left home at age 16 to go play junior hockey, I went to um, high school there in grade 12. And that's where I met Wendy. I was 17 at the time, my first year in the league. And um, we started dating and um, her family were, uh, you know, they were hockey fans and stuff like that. So we dated and uh, then I'd stayed down in London in the summertime, uh, work at the hockey school. And obviously Wendy's family's from there and we'd go back and forth to my my parents play 60 miles away on the weekends um, to see them. But, but um, my first year in the league, believe it or not, back in 1970, uh, I was the only single guy on the team. Most guys were married with kids. Guys got married younger then. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and I remember Jim Gregory and, and we often joke about it after the fact, the general manager, when I was signing my contract at age 20 and I mentioned I was engaged to get married. I remember him saying to me, Daryl, you, you know, you know, you have the whole world, by the the bag here, so to speak, and uh, by the tail here, and uh, why would you want to get married? I said because I love Wendy and I want to get married. And he often regrets that because Mar- Wendy and I went on to be married thirty years, and you know, Wendy would rub it into Jim Gregory. You told him not to marry me. <laughs> That's that great. sort of stuff. But where I'm going with this is, hey, if the right person comes along in your life, and uh, it is that person, and you know it, again, you do what you feel is right in your heart, not what you're other people want to do you have to you know live with your with your instincts and your feelings okay so so now we we have three children ryan was born i guess i was 24 at the time and again kids younger have three kids together and you know i went through lots of good times in my career the canada cup uh, yeah with lanny and ardell and uh in, in montreal and and we tiger and brenda we made a lot of good friendships as couples and our kids were all young having fun together so after my career was over, um, we were going through, you know, the next stage in our life. Wendy just, uh, our youngest one was off to university and we were going to take the next stage or next phase of our life to the kind of the empty nest thing, which a lot of parents look forward to I think, at times. Eh? Well, just at that stage, she was diagnosed with colon cancer and uh, it was stage three. Um, we knew nothing about colon cancer at the time, but we found out quite quickly that colon cancer is the number two killer of cancers in both men and women, yet it's 90% curable with early detection. So, Or preventable. I guess preventable is curable aside. It's is preventable, yeah. yeah. So having known that stat, we were asked if we would be interested in getting an awareness program, national program across Canada, which we were, and Wendy was being treated at the time. We were in Toronto. We had all the media there the cameras rolling and and i got up and said a few words and then wendy got up and in a very emotional way she said to the cameras and the people there she can prevent one person from not having to go through what she was going through with this disease this awareness is worth it and i always remembered that so when i get out and talk to groups or even when i'm chatting to your audience today i feel it's important for me to share this with them that uh 
it is the number two killer of cancers in both men and women, yet it's 90% preventable. So again, being proactive, uh, get checked. Well, I was at an event uh, a few years ago and uh, I had six business guys at my table. And the one guy beside me had mentioned about Wendy and was sorry. And he said, my dad died of colon cancer. I said, oh, really? I said, uh, sorry to hear that. I said, have you had a colonoscopy? And the gentleman said, no, he says, I'm only 38. I said, no, no. I said, if your dad died of colon cancer, it's an important thing family history to get checked. Never thought anything more of it. The last nine months later, I'm doing another charity event for Alzheimer's. We get drafted by a hockey team. I'm in the dressing room on a Friday afternoon meeting my new teammates for the weekend. And the gentleman comes up. She says, Daryl, I got something important to share with you. He said, uh, a gentleman came up to me in my office three weeks ago. And he says, the only reason I'm here is because I shook Sittler's hand to get a colonoscopy. He said, I just want you to know, Daryl, that that gentleman that shook your hand, came in, he had stage two colon cancer, you saved his life. So when I heard that, obviously I got the goosebumps and the tingles down my spine, but it just always, again, reassured me that, hey, you sit on the sidelines and say nothing and do nothing, then nothing's going to happen. So we're talking here today, I share that, you've got a number of listeners out there, there might be one person that said, geez, I haven't had a colonoscopy in 50 years old, maybe I should, maybe I haven't. So that's why I share that with you, not uh, other than that, uh, Maybe it can make a difference in one person's life. Well, you know, it's interesting, Daryl, because that was one of the connections that you and I had. So I don't know if you remember the conversation we had around colon cancer. So two things. I had uh, two sisters pass away. One of them passed away. Both of them started with colon cancer, by the way. And and it, although it metastasized and went on to be something different, that's where it started. And I'll never forget. That was when I was, uh, I'm going to say right around 40 so I was, you know, I've, I've always been a, a, a kind of a fitness buff and I go up and down, but ultimately I eat right. I, I work out regularly and I train and I've always had a focus on health. And I'd had a colonoscopy, I think for when I was about 37, something came up and I said, I'll just have a check. And they come back to me and they go, Patrick, you got the colon of a 20 year old, right? So it was like, no big deal. My sister phoned me when I was 40 and she says, you know, uh, Patrick, brother, um, I've got colon cancer. Yeah, yeah. And you need to get checked. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. No, too young. So anyways, uh, I'm, I'm finding myself getting, <clears throat> I'm finding myself get a little emotional, but the reality of it was, is I was pretty, I was pretty arrogant in my mind, right? I'm going, no, I work out. I, you know, I, I eat right. I do all the things and, and I'm good. So, but I went to my doctor and it was about a year later and they do a colonoscopy. Yeah. And they find innumerable polyps. Now, this is the first time I've actually disclosed this in public, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, and so although it wasn't cancer, it was the doctor's basic message was, it isn't a case of if you're going to get colon cancer, it's a case of when you're going to get colon cancer. And, and it turns out it's a genetic thing called FAP, which is familial adenopatous polyposis. That's all to the side. The point is this, is that, if I would have lived in my arrogance or my ego saying I'm healthy and I'm good, I wouldn't probably be here today. You know, the only treatment with that was elective, which is they said you can do one of two things. You can wait until it's cancerous, which by then the treatment becomes far, far different and is not fun. And that's chemotherapy and all the rest of it. Or you have your colon, part of your colon removed. So mm-hmm. uh, I had to make the decision to have an elective surgery and had four and a half feet of my five foot colon removed. And so, you know, today I'm here because 
of my sister and realizing and taking action, which was to say, this is preventable. Cause like you, when I found out what was going on, I did research and I'm going, holy cow, I've got to, you know, I got to look after this. So when I met you and you shared your story of losing uh, your wife, Wendy and to colon cancer, and, and that was one of the connections I had, I said, this is a great opportunity to use the podcast as a, as a way to get the message out. And uh, you as Daryl Sittler, who I admire, and I admire, I, I got to be honest with you, Daryl, <laughs> I didn't really, it's not like I followed your career. Uh, you know, when I, when I met you and I knew lots of the players that you had played with and I'd met them and just because of my own business, but what I admired about you was who you are as a person. And you could, I could feel the, the, the leadership qualities that you had, the integrity, the humility. And then when you shared with me the story about, Wendy, I went, this is like, this has got to happen. This has got to be the conversation because it is incredibly important for people to understand that, you know, and, and I think, I think doctors in the world of colonoscopies, number one, it's none of what people think it is that have never gone through it. It's not like a big deal. Number one, number two is that, you know, you hit 40, you got to start looking at that kind of stuff. Well, I'm a firm believer, and and I, it, it kind of annoys me. Or I get frustrated sometimes when I, I, I put the message out there, and somebody will come up to me and say, I, I mentioned to my doctor I'm turning 50, and uh, he says, no, no, you don't need a colonoscopy. And then you find out after the fact that something went wrong. I'll, I'll give you an example. So Pat Burns, who everybody knows Pat Burns, a great coach of the Leafs. And, you know, Pat was a cop before, tough mentality, and – like got colon cancer, you know, and uh, it spread to his other areas, his liver, his lungs, like as is with your sister, my my wife. But what Pat said to me, he said, Daryl, I wish I would have paid attention. I wish I would have got been proactive. I had a little blood there. I thought it was hemorrhoids. I didn't do anything, you know. And that's why we're talking about it. There's people out there listening today that have to make a choice or should make a choice, and. Sometimes it just takes these initiatives and these conversations to say, and really, what do you have to lose? If you go and have a colonoscopy and you're clean, hey, great. You don't have to worry about it for another five years, depending on what your age is. Perfect. If you have something, it's like you with a polyp. They take it out or they take a piece of it because once it's outside, that cancer cell is outside your colon, it's hard to stop it. Yes. It goes metastasizes, like you said, in other areas. So, hey, I'm glad we're talking about this today. To me, hey, hockey goals and assists. We've all done that. That's kind of got us to where where I am today. But more importantly, it's those things like Terry Fox's story and and this. It's so important. uh, And 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 just to expand on, you know, Pat Burns was actually had a. You know, here's the one fundamental that I don't want. I, I really want to get this message clear to people that if you're seeing any kind of signs of something like Pat Burns saw a little bit of blood or whatever that was, it's it's often too late. You know, there the symptoms. If you're getting, if you have a symptom. Ah, you're already too late. Yeah. Colon cancer is about getting ahead of it, which means be it's got to be preventative. Don't wait for a, a symptom, you know, or a sign. If if that happens, you're already behind the eight ball. And the, and the other thing, part of that too is be if you have that feeling and you want to get it, you get it. If some doctors disturb, you go to another doctor then. Yes. To talk to him because it's your body, it's your life, not his. Yes. So you take the initiative to do it and be strong about it. Where, where some people say, oh, the doctor said I don't need it. And then it kind of lets them off the hook to think, oh, I'm, but that's not the answer. You know, 
not the answer. You got to find out. You know, one, you know, one way or the other. And the only way you know is through a colonoscopy. And you got to do it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I went through what I went through. That was many years ago. Now it was back in, I want to say 2011 and, you know, quality of my life hasn't suffered with it. I pay more attention than ever, I guess, to my health. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I look at it and I consider is that listening to my sister, because I actually said to her, I go, but Casey, I had, a you know, I had this colonoscopy and she goes, go get another colonoscopy. This is hereditary. This is genetic. And I, and I was really, really doubting her. And, and so I'm so glad I did. I mean, today I have, uh, like you, I mean, we go through what we go through and, but I, you know, my wife, my daughter, my grandchildren, and I'm here because of going for that colonoscopy and getting it checked out in regards of, so good message. And I think it's really, uh, I'm glad that we, we got to it. The other part of this in, in the everyday millionaire podcast is more about, you know, what seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. You know, you, although you have a career as a hockey player, are you, do you think you're well known for being a business guy that you are? Because you have a, you, you know, you've, you've, you've had a lot of business opportunities come your way. You're still very active and entrepreneurial. Your, your wife now, I think, I don't know. I don't recall when you married Luba. Was it like 15 years ago or something? Wendy died in 2001. I married Luba in 2004. We've been married for 14 years, which is phenomenal. What That's a great. blessing. Hey, what a blessing yeah, to find I'm, another I'm a lucky amazing. guy. Not lucky to lose Wendy, but some people go through their whole life and don't find the right person, the one person to love. And I was married 30 years and had a great relationship and now having a great relationship with Luba. We both, and don't take those things for granted. For your listeners out there, sometimes people can take friendships and relationships kind of for granted. And they take effort and work. And, and uh, why wouldn't you want to treat the person you love the most, the best, instead of being self doing other things with your life and neglecting them. So that's kind of my philosophy. You know, isn't that an interesting, it's a great philosophy, by the way. And, and I, you, you bring it up. It's of course, as any husband and wife at any given time, Stephanie can piss me off or I can piss her off. And, you know, yeah. but what I always get grounded back in, and Luba's a nice lady. I've only had the opportunity to meet her a couple of times, but no surprise that she's in your life, given who you are. But I also come to just on that point is, is whenever I'm really feeling annoyed about Stephanie or I'm making her wrong for something, I shift it around and I actually then pick up my attention to say, it's all about her. I'm going to make everything about her and I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to grab her a coffee. I'm going to, when I go to the fridge, I'm going to include her in my conversation with you want something, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to support her if she's doing laundry or making the logistical arrangements in our life, which is a big deal because we're always going somewhere. I actually focus my attention on her. And and the next thing you know, I love her more than I ever loved her. It's a cool way so to be. true. It's a so cool true. way to I be. That's so true. As soon as we start navel gazing. You don't do it for reasons that you want anything back from it. You do it for the reasons out of or just being free love and, and you want to do it. And I totally agree. And it comes back to you in other ways that uh, you wouldn't have dreamed about. But don't always make it a measuring stick either. Well, I did this for you. Well, you should do this for me. Oh, that's no, that's not- never. It can never be about that. It can never be about that. Otherwise, you're destined for another crash. So in the in the world of business, you're doing business. Are you still doing business? You're 68 years old. You're still active. You're uh, you're a very young 68 years old. That would be my assessment of it. Are you still physically active? Or you? I know you're playing some pickup hockey and you're doing some tours and stuff. Are you still doing that? Well, I had uh, back surgery as stenosis. It wasn't from a hockey injury. Uh, a year ago, I had uh, uh, back injury. I still get a little pins and needles in my 
my foot. So I haven't skated much, but I try to get to the gym two or three times a week to ride the bike, uh, go 40, 50 minutes, uh, do a little bit of light weights and all sorts of things. But uh, again, I have to uh, train kind of totally to, uh, to understand what my body can take. You know, like sometimes if you overwork it, then the next two days you suffer a little bit because your knee swells up or your joints. So you kind of have to figure out what's best. But I, I, I don't want to sit idle and do nothing i i feel it's important that i do it and i find exercise too for me it it clears my head space while i'm doing it it uh it makes you feel better as a person that hey listen i got up whatever five six in the morning been at the gym and you've kind of uh, if you want a beer that day or a steak or a baked potato you've kind of earned it so to speak you know that's kind of how i've been and always been you know? So uh, yeah i'll never uh, quit exercising unless physically i can't exercise anymore how old are you in your mind, do you think? Uh, early 50s. Early 50s? Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about that, but I'm not sure. I think I'm I'm, I'm early 40s kind of guy. Mid, late 30s in my oh, mind. Uh, 60. Just turned 60 yeah, years, a few yeah. months ago. So. See, Luba, I mean, uh, she's younger than I am. She's 13 years younger than I am. She's 55, I guess she is. And um, because I'm an athlete, because I'm self-motivated and self-disciplined, she looks at me as obviously a lot younger than 68 either. I mean, you know, just my energy and what I do and all that sort of stuff. So to me, that's kind of why our relationship is what it is too. So it's good. So you're looking at, but once again, back to, you're looking into the future of who you want to be when you're 75 or 78, not just 68. So you're looking into the future and planning into the future that way, which I think is a, is a really cool uh, perspective that people can kind of sink their teeth into and, and because the future is now, you're actually creating your future at 78. You're creating that future well, so. today. I mean, what you're doing by doing that, you're reducing the risk. There's no guarantees. I mean, we don't know from day to day whether a stroke or heart attack or brain aneurysm or whatever it could be. But by doing those sorts of things and you look at statistics, you reduce the risk. You know, Obviously, if you're a smoker, you're a heavy drinker. Well, you know the statistics show that there's a higher risk of other things happening because of those habits, you know, so. You talk about your three, you, you mentioned three kids. Growing up, you know, with, you know, with a, a father as a bit of a, well, or a lot of a celebrity, I guess, of course, especially in Toronto, did that cause, was that good for them or did it cause some challenges because they felt they, you know, you set a bar that they had to measure to? Any of that kind of stuff happen in the family as, as being a, a kind of a big name in the hockey world? Well, so for your listeners, I have, three children my young uh, my young my oldest was ryan he was born um, in 1974 so i was 24 at the time i have a daughter megan uh, she was born 76 and then my daughter ashley was born five years later so two boys and a daughter my son uh, played minor hockey and as did my daughters we moved to the states when i got traded from toronto to philly in 82 so ryan would have been about uh, maybe eight or nine at the time i guess so my kids grew up and played hockey in American cities. And when they became teenagers and they had the uh, opportunity and the skills, Ryan played uh, for the U.S. Uh, national junior team. He played in three world championships over and was drafted first round by the Flyers. Um, he went to the University of Michigan. And uh, Megan, my daughter, she played college hockey. Uh, it was a good school in Maine, Colby College. They were NCAA number, uh, number one division. Both very good players. Ryan went through some 
difficult times. He left Michigan early. Uh, Flyers brought him out his first game in the American Hockey League. He was sucker punched, broke his orbital bone. He missed most of the year. He had seven hours of surgery, pins and screws in his face. But I've always felt that uh, as a parent, you just try to give them the opportunity to support them. But but in their cases, because they were the player and the son and daughter of a Hall of Famer, um, going through those teenage years, and you know, teenagers can be ruthless and reckless and immature. Uh, they were targets at time for me sitting in the stands. It really bothered me. Uh, my daughter, right. again, being a good player and playing on boys teams when she was say 11, 12, 13, it was gut wrenching to see them because she was such a good player to take her out and be mean to her, you know. But uh, Ryan went through some challenges. Um, his career, uh, he had uh, knee surgery. He got involved, uh, you know, hooked on some painkillers. We had to work through those things. But he's doing really well. He's uh, He lives in Florida. My little son, Luke, uh, my grandson, uh, is down there too. So Ryan went through some challenges. And, and uh, you, you could probably uh, ask him. And, uh, and there was a pressure being the, the son of a Hall of Famer. Megan now, like, I'll give you a little background on her. She uh, she played on the U.S. Women's National Team, and when my wife was dying of cancer, so she took a year off to be with her mom. And then that year to be with her dying mom was a life changer for her. She went back and got her master's in social work. She's now a life coach, and her goal and, and uh, ambition in her life is to make difference in, in other people's lives. So she's into spiritual healing, into Reiki, and, uh, and uh, doing group sessions and, and life coaching. Uh, to help people find out really who they are and to make them their lives better for them. My daughter, Ashley, she's married. She's having her third child. But she's going to have three kids under the age of four, but she worked with Molson's uh, in events. Uh, but my kids are all close, and they all have those good family values that were taught to me by my parents. Uh, obviously, they went through challenges losing their mom at such a young age, but uh, they've all rebounded and are doing quite well. So. That's so cool. Now, I noticed, let's talk a little bit about hockey, just briefly, but not about your your story. I, I want to see, what's your view of the world in hockey today? What I'm noticing, and this is, uh, it came up with even when we were chatting with Wendell Clark, but I'm seeing a lot of uh, second generation kids. So you're, you know, I'm looking at, let's say, uh, I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, Matthew Benning. So Brian Benning's son, Wendell Clark's, I think, is, is his grandson? Yeah, he was drafted by Washington, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cody. You know, Cody. And and so I'm seeing this, uh, uh, Simpson. You know, we're seeing all these young players coming from former NHL hockey players. So do you think that's uh, just good genetics or good training? Any any view of that world? Because there's quite a well, number I, of them. I think it's a culmination of a lot of things. I mean, when you're no different than my kids, when I was playing in my career, Ryan was young enough and and old enough at the same time to remember my days in Philly. So you're, you're going to practice for that. You're hanging around the rink. You're playing you know, whatever. So you get to see kind of what the hockey life is. And it's a little bit like even my grandson, Luke in Florida, like Ryan played hockey. He's not played pro hockey for a bit and being around me. uh, So he wants to be a hockey player, even though he's living in Florida and he he loves it, whether or not he's going to fulfill that or not. So I think, yeah, genetically it makes a difference. Um, The parents, uh, again, I think most of us know that, Hey, you have to want it yourself so as a parent even the hockey player and the name's your name they're not out there pushing their kid to be a hockey player they're providing an opportunity they're directing them guiding them kind of through it but in the end 
like Wendell, I see Wendell all the time and he says it's up to Cody, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and the higher up the ladder, you know, you go in, no matter in your business or any business, the pyramid gets a little tougher and, and, and narrower and it's those with the most passion and desire. And yeah, you got to develop your skills that are going to get there, but dad and mom can't get you there. You got to get there yourself. So. So if you're getting, if you're giving guidance to today's parents, you know, one of the things that I've, you know, I've seen over the years with parents is they get so involved in their kid and they want their kid to be seen and they, you know, look at my son or, you know, whatever it is to be the pro. And, and what I've learned over the years is my guidance to parents is always, if he's good, if he's NHL quality, he won't get missed. The chances of him getting missed if he's an NHL level player are pretty slim given the, the tournaments that are played, the scouts that are out there, the kids that are standouts are always being seen and parents always want to try and shine a light and they get hooked in, you know, my son is, could be a potential NHL player. But aside from that, you know, you as the veteran that you are and being involved in the game, even to this day, even if you're just looking at it from the sidelines, what's some, what's some great parent advice you'd give? Well, uh, I, th- I think I said a little bit, the most important thing is to support them and give them the opportunity and then, let the coaches coach, you know, don't get too involved uh, because you're not a coach. And I respect people that give up their time and put in those hours and efforts, you know, and if they're doing that, and even though I'm an NHL player and I see that, Hey, maybe I don't agree totally how they're running and I'm not going to interfere with that. If I don't take the time myself to, to be the head coach and do it, then Hey, I got no reason to, doubt or argue with any anybody else but but um one of the one of the things that i see that probably makes it a little bit more intense for parents it's it's expensive sport to play and um and the parents sacrifice a lot in you know um going to tournaments you know the expenses to play and all the traveling and all that sort of stuff and then what happens is in all these different cities, there are all these four plex, six plex rinks, and they got to fill the ice time. So there's all these different camps in summer and spring and leagues and all that sort of stuff. And as a parent, the kid makes you feel that, hey, if I'm not part of it, I'm going to get left behind. Yes. And sometimes the kid and the parent never gets away from it all year round, you know. And to me, we always got a break. So you play ball in the summertime, and yeah, you still train for your hockey, but it's almost like if you don't do it, then you don't love it enough or you don't show enough respect for it. And I agree totally what you say. If your kid's uh, good enough, um, the scouts, the junior team, the college team, they'll find them they'll, and they'll make you into a player. But I, I look at it, like I've got little grandkids and they're small. Eh? And Luke, he, he's 14. He loves playing. And all I can say from a granddad standpoint, I'm glad he's found something he loves doing three or four times a week in Florida, he's out on the ice skating with his buddies and it'll teach him skills of his life that hopefully will be with him the rest of his life. And then I've got two other grandkids in Burlington, a little Sawyer, he's four, hits hockey all the time with him. Like, I mean, and then the other one, he likes trucks and bulldozers and stuff like that. And you put a pair of skates on him and he's no interest in skating, but they come from the same family bloodlines. But that's, if you have a passion for it, go with it. But as a parent, don't push your kid into it. Okay, so as we wind down the show, I know you're a busy guy, Daryl, and I don't want to take up much more of your time. So I get my afternoon nap in here, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course, you're a grandfather now. You got the leaf game tonight, actually. <laughs> a couple of quick questions, hopefully. Um, 
Did you have a biggest mistake or a failure that stands out for you that actually turned, or even your biggest accomplishment? Do you have one of those two or either of those? Something that stands out for you? Somebody wrote a book. I'm done. Scott uh, Morrison wrote a book a few years ago, and he went to athletes like myself. So he probably went to Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, all named guys who've had successful careers, and said, "What was your greatest moment?" Right? Yeah. And some people would look at me and say, "Well, Daryl's greatest moment was probably his ten point game that he held a record today, still, or the overtime goal in the Canada Cup." The most saddest and gratifying moment I had in my life, um, and I'll. It's a little bit of a long story, but Wendy was uh, going through her, her battle with colon cancer, and I got a call from Ken Dryden that uh, he was the president of the Leafs, and he it was in September, and he says, Daryl, on October the 3rd, the 75th anniversary of the Leafs opening night, we want to honor you and Frank Mahavlich by putting your 27 banners in the rafters, which was a great honor, you know, and I thought that would be great, Ken, but I said, you know, Wendy's ill, and I don't know if the timing's going to work, so... It ended up on October the 3rd, opening night. I wasn't there. Wendy died October the 6th. And so they put Frank Mahavich's 27 up. So then after that, after Wendy passed away, the LEAF organization said they would wait. And whenever time I'm ready to, to do it emotionally, uh, they would do it. So I waited about a year and a half. And I wanted to do it on a Saturday night when the LEAFs were playing the Canadians. Because as a kid, I was a Canadians fan. And I knew the magnitude of a... Saturday night Canadians leap game. So about a, a month before, three weeks before they were going to put the banner up, Ken Dryden came to me and he says, Daryl, we've got an artist rendering of what your, your banner is going to look like. And I looked at it and I said, you know, Ken, what would be meaningful to me if you would consider allowing me to put Wendy's name on the banner. And when I said that to him, I kind of caught him totally off guard. And he said to me, you know, Daryl, that's, I don't think we can do that because if you put your wife's name on the banner, the other players are going to want their knives. On. I said, no, nah, this is a little different, you know, because of her death. And it's been a part of my life for all these years. And as a captain and, and I talk about, and you talk about, Hey, you have a successful career. If you have a good solid foundation and a wife at home to take care of the things that she takes care of when you're busy doing your thing, then I, I really appreciated that. So Ken Dryden, I knew he had to go to the board to ask him the owners and he came back to me and he, had another artist running. He says, Daryl, here's what we decided we'd like to do. We'll put Wendy's name on. We'll keep it your own little secret. We'll put her name in blue lettering on the blue jersey, and you'll know it's there, and your kids will know it's there. I said, no, that's not really what I'd like. I'd like to be able to have it on there. So if and when the camera zoomed in, they knew it was there. You know, I, I, know. I just don't want to hide it. I want it. So kind of caught him off guard a little bit. And I said, you know what, this is important to me. She's been a part of my life, and who's it going to hurt by having her name on the banner? So he, he went along with it, and then the night I was at, and this was my greatest moment, I was at Center Ice with my three kids, um, and uh, and the banner was going up, and I sang my speech, and I said, Wendy's here in spirit and looking down on us. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place or across Canada, people watching. But that was the greatest moment. That kind of brought it all together, the success I had as a player, um, the support I had, uh, you know, my kids there. She was my wife and the mother of the children. And and uh, to have your banner, I mean, what greater uh, acknowledgement or honor can a player have than to have their banner in the, the arena that they played in? So that was my greatest uh, moment, achievement in my life. Wow. And a great way to honor Wendy. So 
Cool. Great story. Thanks for sharing that. As we wind things down, it's just kind of a case of uh, some rapid fire questions. Yes, no, I don't know. Those are all good answers. Are you reading a book right now? Is there, do you have a favorite book that you recommend or that uh, really has inspired you recently? I, I'm not reading a book right now. I'm not a, a big reader. When I read, I, I, I like to read things that are are true and uh, um, more business related than than anything. Um, but I'm not I'm not a big reader. I I read the newspaper every morning. Uh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> uh, I know you can go online and do that now, but I like going and grabbing the newspaper. I get a couple of them and uh, my coffee, and that's my quiet time in the morning. What's your uh, What's your favorite swear word, Daryl? I try not to swear too much. No. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, once in a while, one slips out or nobody. <laughs> but okay, so respectful of people around me. Okay, great. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Well, I, I believe there is a heaven that uh, that exists, and uh, you know, I, I I think each day uh, that goes by, if I can honestly say in my heart of hearts that I, I I I try to enjoy that day, I try to be good to people around me i try to do the you know the responsible things uh uh um then hey i've lived a, a life that uh, that i wanted to live you know um uh, i i think uh, not i think i know that having gone through something like i did with wendy um you see her die at such a young age you have these kind of these years ahead what you're looking forward to but you don't get them I've learned through that that hey, never get too upset over things. Just uh, hey, sometimes things happen for a reason. Roll with it and uh, and uh, try to enjoy enjoy the journey along the way as best you can, and and and, and take the time to do the things you really want to do because if you don't, you might not get that opportunity. Room desk or your car? What do you clean first? My room desk or my car. Uh, I probably well. I make the bed every morning if I if Ruby's uh-huh. not around. I'm, I I don't like walking into a room when a bed's not made. But that's, that's you know, isn't that interesting? Right? Navy SEAL says you know uh, that whole thing about the Navy SEAL when that video went out. He said, "Always make your bed. It's part yeah, of success." I've always been that way, even when I played junior hockey and billeted. Well, there you but, go. But uh, I like I like hanging around my desk. Uh, um, you know, is my desk a little messy? Yeah, I'm right here now and I'm looking around, but. Uh, there's obviously a lot going on here. Nothing worse than when somebody comes in and tries to move things around, and you know exactly where it is, but uh, you might not act until they move it around. Do you have a favorite tune? I don't have a favorite tune, but uh, I'm a country western guy. You know, I like kind of the old Willie Nelson stuff. I like the new country tune. I like uh, Gareth Brooks. Awesome. Me too. Okay, final question. What are you grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful... Uh, what I'm grateful for is the fact that uh, I've, uh, I could look back in my life and I can honestly say I don't really have any regrets. If I died tomorrow, I, I tried to live it the best I could. And, and, uh, and uh, having said that, still young and healthy enough and lots to look forward to. I got a very loving family. My, you, you always want your kids to, to do well. And, 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 uh, and there's a one thing uh, I think that, uh, again, for your listeners, when you're, when you're when you're young and you, you get married and your kids are young, you think, oh, they're going to grow up and and uh, you know. But they'll always be your kids, no matter what age they are. And, and I never realized that my my granddad, who lived till he was ninety four, had twelve kids. He outlived uh, seven of his children. And I remember 
being at his funeral, I was a pole bear for my granddad. But to think here's a guy that lived till he was 94, but had to bury seven of his own children. Uh, what an awful thing to do. But he had a great life. And and he, like me, his wife died at a young age and uh, he remarried. He's, his second wife, my, my step-grandmother, had lived with him as long as my first grandma. So you learn a lot through those experiences of watching people around you who uh, who are good examples to follow. So. Daryl, thank you so much for this podcast today. You know, I'm grateful for having the opportunity to get to know you just a little and to have had this conversation with you. You know, there's no doubt that the leader you were when you were in the NHL and the leader you remain today is apparent just in your overall thought process, your mindset, your commitment to those around you. And I really honor and appreciate that. So thank you for your time today, Daryl. Well, I've always enjoyed my presence around you, Patrick, and uh, and obviously admire your success and I admire what you're doing here with the podcast. You're obviously reaching out to a lot of people. And, and uh, like I said, sometimes we never know when we're going to make the difference, but uh, we are doing that. Thanks, Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.